Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 5. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Psalm 5 on page 449. I'll be reading the entire psalm, but our focus this morning is going to be on verses 10 through 12, and particularly on verse 10. It's always a weighty thing to preach the Word of God, but I think this morning's sermon is particularly heavy, at least it, it feels that way to me. It's, it's heavy because it's dealing with a heavy subject. The theme of our service this morning has been the Lordship and the Kingdom of Christ and our desire to see it extended from shore to shore. But even as we heard in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 72, such a prayer always includes a prayer against the enemies of that kingdom. To pray for God's kingdom to be established is to pray for His enemies to have their kingdoms torn down. And we struggle to understand what to do with such prayers. We, we have such a prayer here in Psalm 5. In, in verse 10, as we will see, David prays for his enemies to be cursed. That's what's meant by imprecation in the title of the sermon. I know from small group last Sunday that, that not everybody is familiar with that term. And, and people wonder, well, what is this imprecation? Well, an imprecation is a prayer asking God to curse someone. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm containing such a prayer. And I've entitled this sermon, Imprecation as Christian Prayer. How do we as Christians make sense of and make use of these psalms where the prayer is that God would curse those who stand against Him? That is the question that we will be wrestling with this morning. I don't promise that you will leave here with a perfectly satisfactory answer, but we are going to try to wrap our minds around the idea of imprecation as Christian prayer. And so let us read Psalm 5 uh, as we have that question in our mind. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. 
But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, and that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, this is a weighty subject that is before us this morning. We ask that you would protect us from error and at the same time lead us into your truth, that we might be sanctified by that truth and that we might be equipped by that truth to go forth from here to do those good works which you have prepared in advance for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, our focus this morning is going to be on the third part of this psalm, verses 10 through 12. Last Sunday, we, we looked at the first two parts of the psalm, where we, we heard first David's uh, cry to be heard. He, he cried out to God, hear me when I pray. Then in the second part of the psalm, he gave reasons for God to hear. He, he gave the reasons for his hope that, that he knows God will hear. But now here in these verses, we finally come to David's petition. What is it that David is asking God to do? Look again at verse 10. He writes, make them bear their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out. Now David's petition is not as graphic as some of the others that that we encounter in the Psalms. You may already know what I'm talking about, but if you do not, you might want to look up Psalm 58 or or Psalm 109 or Psalm 137 later uh, this afternoon or, or later this week because there are some fairly graphic Psalms of imprecation uh, in the Psalter. In comparison to those Psalms, David's prayer here is, is quite mild, but it is still clearly an imprecation. David is asking God to curse his enemies. And such imprecations are hard for us to comprehend. It's not that we don't understand anger. We, we know what it is to feel angry. I, I suspect that most of you know what it is to, to burn with anger when you see some gross injustice. We, we understand anger easily enough. But what we don't understand is David's attitude towards his anger, or the way that David expresses his anger. Writing about a different psalm, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, Psalm 109 is as unabashed a hymn of hate as was ever written. The poet has a detailed program for his enemy, which he hopes God will carry out. But what makes our blood run cold, even more than the unrestrained vindictiveness, is the writer's untroubled conscience. He has no qualms, scruples, or reservations. He has no shame. He gives hatred free reign. He encourages it and spurs it on in a sort of ghastly innocence. He offers these feelings just as they are to God, never doubting that they will be acceptable. It just boggled Lewis's mind. How could the psalmist not feel these things? We understand that. But how could he express these things in prayer without the slightest bit of shame? 
It's the question that we we wrestle with. As as Christians, we want to know, how do we reconcile such expressions of hate with Jesus' command to pray for our enemies and to bless those who persecute us? How do we reconcile such prayers with, with Paul's command to overcome evil with good by feeding your enemy when he is hungry and giving him something to drink when he is thirsty? It seems that these things are irreconcilable. It seems that they are mutually exclusive. It seems that they are impossible to hold together. So how in the world are we to make sense of these psalms? That's the question. It's a question that is before us this morning. And to get at an answer, we have to begin by, by saying a couple of options that are not open to us. First, we may not simply dismiss the imprecatory psalms as evil. We may not simply dismiss them as as gross violations of Christian love. This is what many people try to do. I have a number of quotes here. For example, one author says, These prayers, if it is even legitimate to call them prayers, are beneath the dignity of the Christian and are not to be viewed as examples for us to follow. They are rather the expression of man's sinful desire for vengeance on his enemies. Another author says this, These forms of expression are of such cold-blooded and malignant cruelty as to preclude entertaining the idea that they were inspired by God. And I could go on. I have many more quotes. But, but here is the view of some. They just say, listen, these psalms are so terrible, we're just going to dismiss them as evil. They don't belong in the Bible. They are not the word of God. They find these psalms so disturbing that they just simply dismiss them. They say there's no way that they can be condoned. Certainly they are not to be emulated by God's people today. But I hope you see that this option is not open to us. If we believe that the Bible is the written word of God given for for teaching and for correction and for rebuke and for training in righteousness, we may not simply dismiss part of it as evil. It is, after all, the, the Word of God. Now, some may say, well, maybe just maybe this is just the Psalms' expression of sin. The Bible does that, doesn't it? And, and yes, it is true. The Scriptures do not hesitate to record for us the sins of, of our forefathers in the faith. We, we know about the lies of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we know about the murder committed by Moses. We know about the adultery committed by David. Scripture often records the, the sins of the saints, often in embarrassing detail. But the Psalms are not historical narrative. The Psalms are not simply recording for us the emotional outbursts of God's people. On the contrary, the Psalms are given to us by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just as as a record of the expression of human emotion, but to shape human emotion. They are given to us that we might know how to express our emotions in a way that are uh, glorifying to God and that bring honor to His name. The Psalms are given to us by God Himself so that we might know how to pray. And therefore, we cannot simply dismiss the Psalms that God Himself has given us and say that these are evil. That option is simply not open to us. But nor may we dismiss them as Old Testament prayers no longer fitting for a New Testament people. 
Again, this is what some people try to do. Some people say, well, okay, we can't dismiss them altogether as evil, but, but maybe those psalms were, they were appropriate somehow in the Old Testament. We don't really understand it, but that was an Old Testament thing. Now in the New Testament, we pray differently. Now in the New Testament, we, we, we pray to bless those who, who persecute us. We do not pray to curse. And at first, this sounds more plausible, but again, this option is not open to us, and it's not open to us for two reasons. First, we we cannot dismiss these psalms as Old Testament prayers. First, because the command to love your enemy is actually an Old Testament command. The Old Testament people of God were were every bit as forbidden to take vengeance into their own hands and to to seek the, the harm of their enemy as the New Testament people of God. And not only that, not only was the command to love your enemy an Old Testament command, but the but the idea of imprecation or or the idea of of pronouncing curse upon the enemies of God is actually found in the New Testament as well. Let's think about both of these first. Let's let's think about what it means to say that that loving your enemy is an Old Testament command. You probably already know that when Jesus summarized the law as, as loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself, that he wasn't being original. He wasn't making that up on the spot. He was quoting the Old Testament He was quoting passages that every first century Jew would have known. He was was quoting Deuteronomy 6, which tells us that the Lord our God is one, and we are to love Him with all our heart. That is a passage that every Jewish child memorized and, and quoted daily. And the command to love your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus 19 and was widely recognized as as man's obligation so that when someone comes to Jesus to, to put him to the test and Jesus asks him, what does the law say? He himself can quote these same passages. What what Jesus says was not original to him. And so we we recognize that the law of love is an Old Testament law. It It is a fallacy to say, well, in the Old Testament you had this cold, hard law. But now in the New Testament it's love. No. The law of love is the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law shows us what it is to to love. Everyone in Jesus' day knew this. I'm not saying they, they practiced it. But they knew this, but they had turned it on its head. And the Pharisees said that what what the law teaches is that we are to love our neighbor, but hate our enemy. And we can sometimes mistakenly think that they were quoting the Old Testament, but they were not. They were turning the Old Testament on its head. Listen to Exodus 23. The law in Exodus 23 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him, but you shall rescue it. You are to do good to your enemy. You are to do good to the one who hates you. That's Old Testament law. Proverbs 24 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. In Proverbs 25, we are familiar with because Paul quotes it. It says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So loving your enemy is an Old Testament requirement. Taking vengeance was every bit as prohibited in the Old Testament as it is in the New. You cannot say that that vengeance was an Old Testament thing. It was okay in the Old Testament, but now in the New, we have a new ethic. That's just not what the Scriptures teach. 
On the other hand, it's also false to say that, that prayers of imprecation are found only in the Old Testament. They are actually found in the New as well. They are found even on the lips of Jesus. In Matthew 23... Jesus pronounces a series of woes upon those who have made himself the enemies of his ministry. To pronounce a woe on someone is to curse them. That is a curse. Jesus is pronouncing a curse upon those who oppose his ministry. Now he does it with tears. He does it weeping over their obstinance and over their ignorance. As he he enters Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, he weeps, saying, Oh, that you would have known what would have brought you peace. And yet, even with tears, he pronounces the curse. Paul does the same thing. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, Let anyone, even an angel from heaven, who preaches a gospel other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Paul pronounces a curse upon false teachers, upon those who who proclaim a false gospel. And in Galatians 5, he actually gets pretty graphic with the language that that he wishes this curse would take. He does the same thing again in, in 1 Corinthians 16, only this time the imprecation is towards those who do not love Jesus. Paul ends his letter to the Corinthians saying, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That is startling. This is is the apostle of grace. This is the apostle of justification by faith. This is the apostle who devoted his life to missionary work, to, to proclaiming Jesus where he had not been named. And yet he does not hesitate to pronounce an imprecation, to pronounce a curse on those who do not love Jesus. And he ends it with this prayer, O Lord, come. O Lord, come. We just prayed virtually the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. But do you recognize that every time you pray those words, you are praying an imprecation? Every time you pray for the kingdom to come, you are praying for the enemies of God's kingdom to be defeated. You are praying for the the kingdoms that stand against to be crushed as pottery beneath an iron scepter, as Psalm 2 says. That's what you're praying for when you pray the Lord's Prayer. And so we cannot simply dismiss imprecation as an Old Testament thing. We cannot dismiss them as evil, We cannot dismiss them as Old Testament. We must find some way as New Testament Christians to make sense of these psalms. We must find some way of holding them together with the commands that are equally clear that we are to love our enemies, and that we are to pray for their blessing, and we are to seek their good. We are to hold these two things together at the same time. That's what I want you to see this morning. As Christians, we must hate the wicked and pray for their destruction. And at the same time, we must love them and pray for and actively seek their blessing. I know some of you are going to be tempted to only hear half of what I just said. 
please don't. Please don't go quoting half of what I just said out in the community or to to your, your friends. Hear both. It's both and. We must hold both together because both are taught in the Scriptures. Now, I know, to some of you, that sounds like utter foolishness. You're like, that, that, is, that, is, that is utter nonsense. This is a, a logical impossibility. This is like trying to, to draw a square triangle. You can't do it. This is, a, this is not possible. I, I understand. I understand because I don't fully get this myself. As I was working on this this week, I kept bumping up against the limits of my ability to understand. I, I, I am at the end of my comprehension But while I don't fully understand it, I know it's not impossible. I know it is not impossible to hold these two things together because God does. God holds these two things together. As we saw last week in Psalm 5, God hates evildoers. In fact, it says He hates all evildoers. And He abhors the bloodthirsty. Yet, at the same time, the same God loves the world and desires all men to be saved and takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Those are not two different gods. That's not the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. That is the one true and living God hating with with perfect hatred the evil and the bloodthirsty and so loving the world that He would give His Son, that they might not perish, but have eternal life. That's what God does. And in the same way, we must hate the wicked and at the same time love them. So what does this possibly mean? How do we, how do we work this out? Like I said, you're not going to leave here with a, with a perfectly satisfactory answer. You're probably going to leave here with more questions uh, than answers. But, but let's see if we can understand this a little bit. And to do that, to even begin to understand this, I think we need to get three points firmly fixed in our minds. The first point that we must remember, if we're going to make sense of this, is that imprecation is against the wicked. True imprecation, biblical imprecation, Christian imprecation is not against our rivals. It is not against people we find annoying or people we just don't like for one reason or another. We all have people on that list, whether we want to admit it or not. As, as sinners, there are, there are people who rub us the wrong way. There are people who, who annoy us. There are people who, who compete with us for the things that we want. And it is easy for us, maybe unknowingly even, to use language that suggests we would like them to be cursed. That's not biblical imprecation. That's not what we are talking about. True imprecation is against the truly wicked. This is what David says in in verse 4. He talks about God not delighting in the wicked, but but hating the evil. Then in in verse 9, he describes those whom he is praying against. And notice what he says. He says, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. These are the ones to whom David prays, Oh God, make them bear their guilt. These are the ones that he says, Let them fall. These are the ones that he says, Cast them out. And that is significant. David is praying against the enemies of God and his kingdom, not against people he doesn't like. Not against his own personal rivals. 
It is the wicked. It is the evil that we desire to see wiped from the face of the earth. So first, imprecation is against the wicked. But the second thing that we must remember is that imprecation is against the unrepentant. All right? Imprecation is not just against the wicked, but it is against the unrepentant wicked. It is against those who harden their hearts in their sin and rebellion against God. You see, you must hate the wicked even as God hates the wicked. But at the same time, you must a thousand times prefer to see them repent and be saved than see them continue in sin and be destroyed. You must a thousand times prefer to see them turn and receive life than to get what they justly deserve. Why? Because this is what we see in God himself. This is how God holds these two together. There is a a clear subordination here. God hates the wicked, but he takes no no pleasure in their destruction. And yet, as we've seen in our study of Luke's gospel, he rejoices greatly when a sinner repents. This is the reason, Peter tells us, that he holds back his wrath. This is the reason that he is patient. This is is the reason that he endures with us with such amazing long-suffering. He does not want the wicked to perish in their sins. And we must emulate God in this. We, We must be like God in preferring repentance to judgment. And we see it even here in Psalm 5. We might miss it, but we see it. Look, Look again at verse 11. He says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. He's praying that God would spread his protection over them as a shield. And when we read verse 11, we assume that it applies to the oppressed. We we assume that it applies to those who are are being persecuted. And of course it does. David is is praying that they would find relief. David is praying that they would be protected from the, the schemes of the enemy. But do you recognize that these words also apply to the oppressor? If they repent, if they turn to God from their sin, they will be shown mercy. This is what Jonah knew about God, and he hated it. He knew that though God had pronounced a judgment against Nineveh, that if they repented, they would be spared. Where do you think Jonah learned that? How do you think Jonah knew God was that way? Well, there's any number of places he could have learned it, but, but one place he could have learned it was in the conquest, and the, the story of Jericho. Do you remember the, the story of Jericho? God had, had pronounced a judgment against all the nations of Canaan, beginning with Jericho, because of 400 years of unrepentant sin. God had, had said, these people are devoted to destruction. And yet... When Rahab repented, she was spared. When Rahab acknowledged God for who he was, she was shown mercy and she was invited into the people of God, so much so that she is listed in the genealogies of our Savior. Jonah knew Because he knew the story of of Jericho. He knew that that while our God is a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished, he delights to forgive. And so you see, as as Christians, as, as followers of Christ, we must Pray for, and we must long for the the destruction of the wicked. We must long for, for evil to be eradicated, for evil to be undone. 
But we should a thousand times prefer to see them die in Christ, crucified with Him, that they might be raised again to new life. Yes, the evil must die. The wicked must die. They must be eradicated from the face of the earth. But it is our deep longing that they would not die in themselves, but that they would die in Christ just as we have died in Him. You see, we needed to die too. We needed to be put to death too. We needed to be wiped from the face of the earth too because we too were wicked. We too were dead in our trespasses. We too were following after Satan, Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 2. And we had to die. We had to be put to death. We had to be crucified. But in Him, we have been made alive together with Christ. And now we long for all the evil to die, but oh, that they would die in Christ, that they might be raised up again with Him. And so the first thing we see is that sin is against the wicked, that imprecation is against the wicked. The second we see that this imprecation is against the unrepentant. (laughs) It is against the unrepentant wicked. And if you are sitting there and thinking, "I, I just don't think I could pray that way. I understand where you're coming from, but do not think... Do not think that that you cannot pray this way because you are too virtuous to hate. If you struggle to pray this way, it is because you are not virtuous enough. Listen to what one pastor says. Imprecations are expressions provoked by the horror of sin. David prayed this way because of his deep sensitivity to the ugliness of evil. Perhaps the chief reason why he wasn't bothered by prayers of imprecation, and we are, is that he was bothered by sin, and we aren't. It is frightening to think that we can stand in the presence of evil and not be moved to pray as David prayed. And so we see that imprecation is against the wicked. We see that imprecation is against the unrepentant. And finally, we see that imprecation is prayer. We are asking God to act. We're not telling Him what we are going to do. We are asking Him to do something. And by so doing, by, by, by taking these petitions and putting them in the form of prayer, we are submitting ourselves to God's will. We are submitting ourselves to His wisdom and to His timing in exactly the way that Paul describes in Romans chapter 12. Listen to what Paul writes. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a whole sermon just right there. But but think about what Paul is saying. Think about what Paul has, has just written. He does not say that vengeance is bad. He doesn't say don't take vengeance because vengeance is, is evil. Not at all. He says do not take vengeance because it belongs to God. Do not take vengeance because it's not yours. It's not your prerogative. It is, it is God's prerogative. We must leave it to Him to execute in His way and in His time. 
And again, David, the author of this psalm, is a a perfect example of this. David was not ashamed to pray prayers of imprecation, and yet he would not take vengeance with his own hands. Think of David with Saul. Saul, who who unjustly sought to take his life, who who multiple times tried to kill him. Many times Saul was was placed right on a platter before David. David had the opportunity to to kill him. David had the opportunity to, to take his life, and he would not. Vengeance is not mine. It is the Lord's. And later in his ministry, when, when David, because of his sin, was, was forced to flee from Jerusalem, from his own son Absalom, a descendant of Saul came out to him and, and cursed him. And, and David's warriors wanted to put this upstart to death. They said, who is this man that thinks that he can curse the king? And David said, leave him alone. It is in God's hands. If he curses me without warrant, God will repay him. But if he curses me because God told him to, then may God be merciful. It is not mine to judge. It is not mine to take vengeance. Leave it to the hands of God. David said that. David, who prayed against his enemies, nevertheless left it to the hands of God. And we must be like David in this. We do not take vengeance into our own hands. We do not assume to be the executors of of God's wrath. We pray for their destruction because they are wicked. But at the same time, we leave it to God while we serve them. While we feed them when they are hungry. While we give them drink when they are thirsty. Yes, you you pray for the wicked to be overturned. You pray for them to be cast down and, and, and thrown out. But at the same time, you actively seek their blessing with the resources that are at your disposal here and now. That is what you are called to. That is what it looks like to hold imprecation together with the call to to bless those who persecute you. And not only do we seek their their material well-being, but we pray for their conversion. We pray that God would would grant to them repentance unto life, that He would open their eyes to see and open their ears to hear, that they might turn and be saved. We do not want them to continue as the wicked. We we want this world to be purified. We we want it to be rid of evil. We want God's kingdom to come. But we pray that God in His grace would draw all of our enemies to Himself. That in this life, and not at the judgment, they would bow the knee to Christ and confess that He is Lord. That is the desire of our heart. And so we see or at least we begin to see, that yes, imprecations are Christian prayers. They are Christian prayers asking for God's kingdom to come, asking for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, asking for His enemies to be destroyed. We see this maybe most clearly of all at the end of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we are told that uh, the, the nations rage against the king, And that the king laughs at them. He holds them in derision. And he will crush them as pottery beneath an iron scepter. But then at the end of that psalm it says this. Kiss the son. Honor him. Be wise is what the say say is. Be wise, O kings. See the foolishness of your defiance and repent. Kiss the son. Acknowledge him as your king. Because his wrath is quickly kindled. And the only place of safety is to take refuge in Him. He is a threat to all who would stand against Him. 
He is a terror to all who would, who would stand uh, high-handed in sin. But there, but there is no safety in fleeing from Him. There is only safety in fleeing to Him. John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and they will be destroyed. And we pray to that end. We pray that, that the wicked would be destroyed. We pray that they would be no more. I mean, just think about it. There are real evils in this world. Think of ISIS. Think of the abortion industry. Think of sex trafficking. And you could, you could name a thousand more. How can you hear these things? How can you think of these things and not boil with hate against them? These things are wicked and we long for them to be no more. But at the same time, we long that those who do these things would be redeemed, would be turned from their wickedness, not to die in obstinate sin, but to confess like the thief on the cross and be saved. For that was the mercy that was shown to us. Do you realize that? We were like them, like the rest of mankind, objects of wrath, and we were shown mercy. May that same mercy be shown to others. For you see, it is in the cross of Christ that God's perfect hatred of evil and His love of sinners are perfectly united. In the cross, we see that God cannot leave the guilty unpunished. In the cross, we see that the guilty must die. And at the same time, we see that God so loves the world that He would give His Son that they might live. And just as God has woven these things together in the cross, we too must weave them together in our life. We will not do so perfectly. We will stumble and fall. But we must not give up either one. We must continue to hate evil with God's hatred. And we must continue to love the sinner with God's love. By His grace, may we learn to pray this way. Because when God's church prays this way, it experiences the full blessing of the gospel. That gospel that we call good news. Do you believe this? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, these are hard things. And we have only begun to scratch the surface. And our minds swirl. And we wonder how can we possibly hold these things together. Father, give us your grace. Give us your grace that we might truly hate evil. And at the same time, not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Give us, give us your grace, Father, that we may abhor all unrighteousness. And at the same time, long for the justification of the ungodly. Father God, this is what we pray. Give us this grace, we pray, that we might more and more be like you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.